Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. As we approach the one-third mark of the season, we also enter November's international break, a perfect time to take inventory of our no-longer-young season. Are Arsenal true contenders? How about Spurs? We learned a little bit more about both sides in Sunday's North London Derby. Has Liverpool turned a corner after their midweek win in Kazan? Jurgen Klopp was undefeated heading into this weekend's visit from Crystal Palace. And could Manchester City keep its place at the top of the league despite the prolonged absence of their two best attackers? Remy Gard may have had other ideas in his Aston Villa debut. For those teams as well as Leicester City, Newcastle, and the ever-embattled Chelsea, we got a better idea of where they stand as they approach the middle part of the season. To talk about that, I welcome my co-host, Kartik Krishnayer. Welcome back, Kartik. Lawrence McKenna is going to be joining us in a little bit. But Kartik, the, play, the place to start this weekend is the Emirates, where a late goal from Kieran Gibbs salvaged a 1-1 draw for Arsenal with Spurs. But let me posit these two conclusions for you. One... Tottenham is very much for real, having been the better side for most of this game and having not lost since Kyle Walker's own goal at Old Trafford in a match day one. And secondly, the way that Arsenal was riding throughout October after th- three losses and four now has finally died out. Yeah, this was a, a very disappointing performance from Arsenal. Uh, this, despite the result, they got the result at the end. Uh, Kieran Gibbs, uh, very, very odd to see him uh, thrown in an attacking role, but Arsenal, because of their injuries... Uh, they needed the guy with pace. They needed the guy who could make those those, those uh, delayed runs, which he did to score the goal. Although Lloris maybe c- could have done a little better on that. Yeah, uh, surprising. From Kyle Walker could have done a lot league. better on no, that. No, Kyle Walker could have done a lot better on that. Right? Uh, Walker's been the goat in both their kind of high profile. Well, that's true. Uh, yeah. Letdowns, you know, right? Manchester United, and then now this. Uh, but I, I just, I just felt like Spurs lost that game for about seventy minutes, mm-hmm. and uh, Deli Ali showed. Uh, his quality, uh, why everybody is so excited about this player that was in League One at this point last season. Uh, Harry Kane, well-taken goal. But Musa Dembele, the one real veteran they've got in this side, or at least uh, in the midfield going forward, the one real veteran, reintegrating him in this team coming off of an injury has made Spurs as good as anyone in the league because uh, he just absolutely controlled the midfield today for Spurs. And, And I would say the other... Major takeaway for me uh, from this, Not uh, one is obviously Spurs are a title contender now, and I thought a year ago that they might be a title contender this season, but they'd be fighting with Chelsea because they had a very young team, and we knew Ali was coming, and we knew some of these guys were coming good. My other takeaway is that Arsenal without Aaron Ramsey in the midfield look uh, really uneven, unbalanced. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Ozil's having to do more running than he's comfortable with, more covering. Same thing with Sanchez. And uh, uh, Joel Campbell is more of an attacking player. So he didn't have a bad game, but you, you have a situation where uh, they don't, they, they're they not balanced. They're not, they don't look right without Ramsey or a Ramsey-like player. I, I, and I guess they don't have another player who does what he does other than Ox, who's also injured. Hmm. Yeah, a lot there to unpack. I, there's so much there I agree with and so many interesting things to talk about, especially the two midfield dynamics you mentioned because Arsene Wenger did have to make an early change to his midfield, did bring on Matthew Flamini, uh, somebody who had two goals against Spurs earlier this year in League Cup to get a win at White Hart Lane. I, I think we're probably going to end up talking about the two midfields for the next 10 minutes, but... Uh, this match was opened up early by Harry Kane, who got the first goal for Tottenham, who carried that one nothing lead well into the second half. Uh, around the 78th minute, Metsu also crossed from the right flank to the far post. Kyle Walker counted a little bit out of position. Kieran Gibbs with the score makes it 1-1. It really was a match where Spurs showed their quality. And for Kartik talking about the midfield, they also showed their flexibility. Uh, pushing Christian Eriksen out wide to the left, they had a midfield made up of Musa Dembele, uh, Deli Ali, Eric Dyer, three players who, uh, coming into the season, maybe we didn't think were going to play as big a parts as they would today. But I want to start with Christian Eriksen because we see... This a lot from teams where teams will, against tough or opposition, take their playmaker in the midfield, move them wide, uh, build that midfield up. Everton's the team that seems to do this the most, try to move around Ross Barkley whenever they need to show up that midfield. But today it was it, it was as if Mauricio Pochettino actually, he just won the, the early tactical battle by doing this because of the versatility of Dembele and Deli Ali and just the quality of Eric Dyer. Right, and, and those guys making uh, timing their runs and playing off of one another, the great understanding between those three guys in central midfield. Dembele go, pushes forward, Dyer stays back. Uh, same thing with Ali and Dembele and Dyer. And Erickson, of course, is playing. Uh, you have the flexibility to move him out left with Chadley's injury, which I, I think is still a couple more weeks away from being fit. I don't think he, he's going to play for Belgium in this break. So uh, we might see more of this from Spurs, and when Chadley gets back, uh, we'll we'll see how uh, how they, uh, the reaction is to Ericsson because Ericsson is such an important player in the on the attacking end of the pitch when he is playing in that central role that central attacking midfield role in 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 linking up with Harry Kane and linking up with Chadley and linking up with Lamella or whoever Spurs have out on that side it used to be Townsend but Townsend's now in the doghouse but what we saw today is that Dembele gives a much more complete box to box presence than Ericsson does if you play, play this three-man midfield. So it might be something that Mauricio Pochettino has to think about for their bigger games going forward. When Chadley's back, maybe you sit Chadley. Maybe you move Erickson out to Lamella's wing and sit at Lamella. But I, I think that the case has been made now that you don't play with that number 10 in, in, in a game like this, away from home against a, a rival, against a team that, that's uh, at least on paper better than you. You play with the three-man midfield, and you pick your spots going forward. And, and, and I think it worked brilliantly today. And Dembele is also somebody that we've seen started out wide this year, kind of playing a more defensive wide role or coming into the middle to add another man in the middle. Just the versatility and even being able to bring somebody like Mason in off the bench and change that up even more. And then Sun's back healthy. Just a lot of options for Spurs. And I feel, feel like it's almost the opposite for Arsenal Kartik because even though they have somebody like Mikel Arteta on the bench, who's, whose best days certainly seem behind him at this point, when they needed to go to an option, even though they were down a goal, they had to reinforce. Instead of getting aspirational with their substitutions, they had to bring on Matthew Flamini for Santi Casola and kind of make that concession that they don't have another option. They have to go with that. 
And when you have somebody like Metsud also on one one end of that midfield triangle, uh, Francois Co- Francis Coquelin on the other end, these are two very good players, but they're also not very versatile players as far as the positions and the styles that they can play. And I think that really hurt Arsenal today. The, the difference between their lack of versatility and Spurs' versatility really showed up. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I guess I guess the, the two most versatile players they have in, in their midfield are Ramsey and Ox, and they're both injured. But this is a consistent problem because we can say, well, they're injured, so th- that's unlucky. But Arsenal always has these injuries. And I know there are people who are going to complain. They're going to tweet at you and me, Richard, after this show as to why we, we, we keep bringing things up like this when we say that everybody has a clean slate at the beginning of a new season except for Arsenal. But the, the, the pattern is clear. Uh, the uh, the history is very instructive when it comes to Wenger teams, where, where it may not be as instructive when it comes to the other 19 teams in this division. So, I mean, there are lessons in history for each of those teams, but they're far more with, with Wenger and Arsenal. And again, you have a, a, a boatload of injuries, a, a bottleneck uh, of players on paper you, you think you have, and all these options, which now... Uh, has yielded a team that's very limited because of all the injuries. And it's the same players who are consistently getting hurt. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Aaron Ramsey every year, even when it's not a huge injury like he had at Stoke, seems to always be injured. Um, Theo Walcott, all of these players, they're in and out. And Ox is always injured. And you heard Arsene Wenger this week admit that he was worried about it. Granted, he only became worried after they lost at Bayern. So we're starting to get some Wenger-isms showing up here, too. He was a little bit cocky earlier in the week, got humbled, and now he's noting that the team seems a little bit thin, which everybody else can see. Um, When they do get healthy... Like you've said all year, I don't think Lawrence and I have been as animate about it. You have definitely conceded that Arsenal is as talented a team as anybody in the league. Uh, Let's talk about Spurs for a little bit because the goal that they gave up, despite their control of the game beforehand, was a little bit concerning because they gave up a similar goal against Anderlecht in the middle of the league. The week while they won that match two one, they end up dropping two points because their inability to prevent crosses, their inability to defend crosses. And Carter, when I look at this Spurs team, the one place where I think that they might be a little bit lacking in quality is at that fullback, those fullback positions. I wonder about Danny Rose. I wonder about Kyle Walker. I wonder about their alternative choices like Karen Trippier. And two games this week, it almost cost them. One game, it did cost them. Yeah, Ben Davies also another guy that uh, uh, is is kind of not at that top four level quality. There, there are four fullbacks. I would agree with that. I, I thought I was surprised Trippier didn't get to start at the beginning of the season. I thought maybe he would be the starting right back this year because I've been mm. so unconvinced by Walker the last few years. Uh, the the uh, game mid midweek against Anderlecht, they uh, had some horrible let offs. Uh, the goal the goal came after a couple of other opportunities that came in from wide areas for for uh, the Belgian side, and then obviously today they shipped two points out on that so that that's the one real concern uh you don't want to put Vertonghen back you don't want to move you don't want to mess this up and move Dyer back to center no back yeah and not, move to you back. don't want to mess Dyer's. with that midfield that triangle yeah. of Dyer in front of those two really good central defenders they have at this point yeah because Dyer is playing so well in that midfield and and uh, again Pochettino I, I thought he was a little bit crazy when he moved Dyer into the midfield earlier in the season and thought, okay, he's just forcing a way to get him on the pitch because he signed Alder Worrell, who we know is a top-quality center back, both internationally and at the club level. So he's just trying to fit, fit, fit these guys all in, uh, in the team. He saw something in Dyer, and Dyer's mobility is much better than we thought it was, or at least much better than, than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's working right now, but the fullback positions are really the issue right now for Spurs. Spurs got a point at the Emirates. If we had said that yesterday, we would have said that's a good result for Tottenham. But after looking at this game, doesn't it feel like more of a missed opportunity? Yeah, it does. I think it feels like an, uh, a, a chance that, 
to really put their foot down in this Premier League season and say, we went to the White, uh, we went to, sorry, not the White Hart Lane. We went to the Emirates. We beat our biggest rivals. They were top of the table or joint top of the table coming into the day. Uh, people have, uh, we've been flying below the radar for a lot of people. Not for me, of course. I've been telling Spurs all season, but now we're here. We've arrived. Instead, it was a let off, and, and people uh, were reacting on social media saying it was typical Spurs, typical uh, uh, Tottenham. But in reality, to me, it was typical Arsenal that they didn't win this game. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I, I feel, still feel it's a much better result for Spurs in spite of losing that lead late than it is for Arsenal. You mentioned typical Arsenal. We've seen Arsenal kind of score in bunches, uh, particularly during the last month of the season. The last 20 minutes of this game kind of had that feel after Arsenal got their goal. Kind of felt like they could go and get a second. It didn't happen. But the parallel I want to draw here is also to Metsuth Otsul, who such a fabulously talented player. But also we see uh, during a large part of this game, somewhat easy. I don't want to say easy, but he was he took... Another player took him out of the match for a long period of time. And we see this throughout Metsud Ozil's career where he has these huge spans of huge influence and then doesn't have that effect throughout the other parts of the game. And I just wonder if Arsenal has become a little bit too much like Metsud Ozil in that way where they can be brilliant in spurts but not brilliant enough to really avoid a match like today where they just weren't brilliant early enough. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of that has to do also with uh, Ramsey's uh, absence that he's just covering more ground. He's having to do more. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that Ramsey does that don't necessarily show up on the score sheet, although obviously Ramsey's also gotten uh, recognized for patented late runs, a la Clint Dempsey, Frank Lampard, that kind of midfielder, mm-hmm. and, and scoring goals that way. But uh, that having been said, Ozil has this tendency to drift in and out of games. We've seen this for years. We saw this at Real Madrid. Uh, we, we, we saw this uh, certainly when, when you, when you uh, looked at his performance with the German national team. And we've seen it at times with Arsenal. And in this game, with that overwhelming midfield that we talked about, that three-man midfield, that uh, central midfield situation that, that Pochettino set up, they essentially marked Ozil and Sanchez, for that matter, out of the game for large portions of, of the mm, match. Yeah. Uh, Alexis has not played particularly well in this kind of swoon of, of Arsenal's performances. Now, it's tough to put him under the microscope because he is such an exceptional player, especially in a league right now that's hard up for, for the kind of stars that the Premier League is accustomed to having, since so many of those stars are now playing in Spain and Germany, and, and some in France even, that uh, we, we, we don't necessarily criticize Sanchez maybe the way we should after performances like this. Hmm. No, Sanchez is another player. I think the number coming into this season is he only scored five goals in the last 16 matches of last season. This is part of the reason why, despite all the numbers that we've talked about over the last couple weeks, we remain a little bit reticent because when they are at their peak, even before this year, Arsenal, of course, looks like a team that can contend for a title. But then we see days like today where things don't click and we wonder if the last three ma- three out of four losses that we've seen over the last couple of weeks do hint at what Arsenal is really going to be over the next few months. But um, Arsenal's title challenge has definitely been one of the stories of the season. We can throw Spurs' name in there as a title contender that still maybe has a little bit to prove. But of course, the game in North London wasn't the only match this weekend. In fact, it was the last one on a 10-fixture list that began on Saturday when Newcastle clawed their way out of the bottom three thanks to Ayose Perez's goal in a 1-0 win at Bournemouth. The Cherries, still crippled by injuries, are now in 18th place. At the Stadium of Light, Jan Mvila's careless tackle deep in the right side of Sunderland's penalty area gave Dusan Tadic a chance for a winner from the spot. Southampton's 1-0 victory moved them 7th while keeping the Black Cats in the bottom 3. 
Manuel Lanzini and Romelu Lukaku traded first half goals as Everton drew with West Ham 1-1 and two gifts gifts from Aurelio Gomez allowed Leicester to hold serve at home against Watford 2-1. Louis van Gaal and Tony Pulis combined for one of the more sedating games of the weekend with Manchester United beating West Brom 2-0 at Old Trafford. Norwich is back in the win column at the expense of Swansea after a 1-0 result at Carroll Road and Stoke ended the one-game winning streak Chelsea took out of Champions League beating a Jose Mourinho Les Blues 1-0 at the Britannia in Saturday's late game. On Sunday, Manchester City felt the loss of Sergio Aguero, Davi Silva, as well as Wilfried Boney's early departure in a nil-nil draw at Aston Villa. Liverpool capitulated late to give Crystal Palace a 2-1 win at Anfield, while Kieran Gibbs did grab that late equaliser 1-1 in the North London Derby. Sunday's last result means Manchester City remains on their perch at the top of the table, with only goal difference edging them ahead of Arsenal. Leicester, on 25 points, is one back, with Manchester United in fourth, within two of the top. Spurs and West Ham are tied for fifth, with 21 points each. Kartik, let's stay at the top of the table. Let's talk about Manchester City. Uh, you could talk chalk this game up to something that just happens throughout the course of the season. A dominant performance, but they're on the road. Uh, against a team that maybe has a little bit of energy from a new coach and ends up nil-nil. The injuries seem like it could have played a part without their two best strikers for most of this game. Still without Davi Silva, we keep forgetting about him remarkably. Um, what did you think of the, today's match? What was the explanation for stumbling at Villa Park? Well, I actually think it was probably a reasonable and good result, given all mm. the circumstances you just laid out. Okay. Remy Gard comes in. I, I sense some energy from Villa. Uh, because of that, I obviously didn't take their chances, Manchester City, but uh, no Silva. Look, no Aguero is not uh, – not having Aguero is not a huge deal when you when you consider the other options City have to, to score goals. But mm. not having Silva and then the natural replacement, which is Nasri, is a really, really big deal because that fundamentally mm. changes the way you play. So you're, you're having to play uh, with – uh, three kind of deep-lying midfielders. And if Yaya Tori is not in the mood, which he wasn't today, then you're really playing uh, with your, uh, you're playing more defensively than, than Pellegrini wants to. Sterling, De Bruyne, and Navas, I thought, were all pretty good today, but they couldn't finish. Uh, I mean, De Bruyne and Sterling in, in particular couldn't finish today, even though I, I think the movement for both those guys was very good. A lot of criticism from Manchester City supporters that uh, Inaccio, the youngster, didn't come on earlier uh, that is, again, a situation where you can be chalked up to two things. One, Pellegrini doesn't necessarily trust youth. Uh, but the second thing I think more importantly is that Pellegrini knows he also has to manage a 19-year-old. And mm-hmm. uh, he's already played in, in eight Premier League games and he's in cup matches and such. So uh, it's, it's difficult uh, to, to, to put a lot on, on a kid that, that's, that, that is that young and have him constantly playing. So... Um, the, the, the other thing is Villa were playing with a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm for their new manager. And I think uh, maybe Pellegrini gets faulted for this or not, depends on your perspective. But there is no doubt that putting Pavi and Delph in this match uh, energized the Villa crowd and energized the Villa team. Hmm. You mentioned there was some criticism about not putting Inaccio on uh, earlier. Was there any criticism about trying De Bruyne up top before moving Sterling there? Yeah, I, I think the, the the general feeling all along was that uh, Sterling would move centrally once uh, once Boney got hurt or if we were ever in this circumstance leading into this, this sort of game. Instead, De Bruyne was tried centrally, and, and his movement uh, is fine from that position, but he doesn't see as much of the ball. And he's a guy that, that likes to roam, right? He's a, he's a floater, which is... Uh, uh, 
maybe perhaps why Jose Mourinho didn't like him at Chelsea, right? That's the kind of player he is. <laughs> and uh, Mourinho doesn't like floaters. He didn't like Mata. He didn't like De Bruyne. There's a pattern. He didn't like Sherla. I mean, he didn't like any of those players that play that way. So, um, and now they're paying for it. But that's, we'll wait, we'll wait to talk about Chelsea. We're going to try and get through much of the show without talking about Mourinho. So sorry. I apologize. For right. Uh, but, but the point being, I think when you have him in a position where he's isolated, he's then floating back for service and the shape didn't mm. make sense. So then once Sterling began to play centrally, we saw more chances for City from that point on, although he couldn't finish any of his chances. Mm. Uh, let's talk about Villa for a second. Obviously, Remy Gard's first match um, snaps a seven-match league losing streak for Aston Villa. Did you see anything today that makes you th- think that there are early signs that Villa can turn things around other, other than the obvious result? But uh, they were still outshot 13-3. to Only three shots is just a ridiculously low total. Yeah, I, I I didn't see much going forward. I thought at the back uh, they looked they looked pretty good, and uh, central midfield situation looked better than it's looked. Uh, and, and there was an energy uh, in in the side, but going forward they still have some real problems. They are going to have to get a striker in January. I don't think there's any question about that. If they have any intention of staying in this division, they need to get a guy who can score goals uh, consistently up top, and probably need to get. A central midfielder of some note. So basically, the two players they lost, big time players they lost <laughs> in the summer, Benteke and Delft, they, they need to replace those guys. They actually need to replace them six months later. Uh, let's move from right. Manchester City back to the city of Manchester, where, well, I guess some people would <laughs> chip, be chippy about calling this the city the next of Manchester. City over. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, let's not get into that. But at Old Trafford today, Manchester United on Saturday, Manchester United 2 0 victory over West Brom. Uh, this is just such a very typical Manchester United performance. Karteka, the guardian for three matches in a row have actually included some allusion to Manchester United's poor play in their headline uh, today calling it United far from pretty as their subhead on uh, the victory I think that's very interesting Kartik because we've gone from the point where noting Manchester United is boring and dull is analysis to the point where it's actually just considered part of reporting at this point yeah and and they're getting results Uh, they don't necessarily have the most uh the, 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 the most aesthetically pleasing style on the eye right now, which is, uh, which is not what Von Hall wants. Von Hall wants a team that, that, that is quick, that can move, that can possess the ball. They're not doing those things the way he'd like now. He doesn't have Paul Scholes in this team, though, right? And he doesn't right. have Ryan Giggs in this team. So he has Ryan Giggs on the bench next one, but he doesn't have those two players. And I think we view Manchester United through the context of – the way they used to control the games when they had those two guys, particularly Skulls in that midfield. And we, we just can't get, uh, get, get into this notion of Manchester United playing a different way and, and, and having to grind out results like this. But there were times in the Fergie era uh, towards the end of Skulls and Giggs' careers where they were less dominant and they Definitely. were still getting results like this. Uh, that, that was really kind of their period of, of dominance, their period of asserting themselves uh, was always related to they had a lot of great players, don't get me wrong, and especially Cristiano Ronaldo, but it was related to the, to the form and the, the quality and the prime of those two players I mentioned, Giggs and Skulls. So they don't have guys at that – they don't have a single player right now on that team at the level of each, either of those two guys. Yeah, so and you, think you can't of- – Oh, go, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to add to that. You think of the midfield options. They have a, a lot of good midfield options. But at this point in his career, Michael Carrick, we don't think of somebody that can move the ball quickly and get forward. The same thing with Bastian Schweinsteiger, even though he can help control the game. Morgan Schneiderlin, maybe a little bit more, but he's just not that quite that type of player. Juan Mata is not the quickest player in the world, even though he has a very creative mind. And you just wonder 
if there was a little bit more Pochettino in Van Hall, one, Ander Herrera would never be out of the team. But secondly, they would have two or three more players like that, and this team would be able to have some of the life that you're saying that they, they just don't have. Yeah, they, they just seem like a team that's, that's grinding a lot, right? Yeah. They're, they're having to grind, but they're getting results. So I, I, I think given the relative weakness at the top of the Premier League, now obviously it's a very deep league, and uh, you're, you're seeing teams that are, that are fighting relegation able to, to, to take points and, and beat teams that, are, that have title aspirations on a regular basis. These aren't just one-offs when you see these sorts of things where Villa gets a draw against Man, Man City. That's, that seems to be a more regular occurrence in this league than in any other league in the world, uh, any other top league in the world. But I, 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 I think they're getting there, right? I mean, Von Hall has his ideal notion of how they want to play. Uh, guys like Memphis haven't really panned out yet. Martial has hit a bit of a wall, so he's had to integrate Lingard, who I think has been very good. He's been a breath of fresh air, but you know, you know that's not going to last. Yeah. So uh, I, I think he's just trying to figure it out, and they're, and they're getting results. I mean, I'm actually more concerned about the uh, the team they played this weekend and, and, and what's going on there. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because I don't want to leave this segment without talking about West Brom and a very deceptive West Brom when you look at the table. But um, a couple other things to note from this game. Uh, Wayne Rooney is a number 10 again. I don't think there's anything new to say here. Van Hall and Rooney's teammates seem to have faith that he'll bring it around. We, we know he's been bad. We just have to wait for that to change. There's nothing new to add to that. But you mentioned Jesse Lingard. I think that is very, very interesting because Memphis Depay is just being forgotten about and I don't even necessarily think that's a bad thing because he wasn't playing well it's just very interesting that this young player that you would think needs minutes of some kind has been getting some minutes in league cup and coming in in champions league but they have gotten to the point where their big offseason acquisition is no longer a regular part of this team at this point yeah and Lingard a player that uh, has been loaned out a number of times and just kind of discarded uh, we see Pochettino, what he's done with Spurs, taking guys that fit that profile, like Ryan Mason, and integrating them into the squad, and, and to the point where he becomes an England international within a year, so or within six months. I think uh, Mason was called in towards the end of last season. And uh, th- that's becoming more and more a thing uh, with squad limits and, and some of these players who aren't acclimating. It, back in the day, when we would see top clubs, the Manchester Uniteds, the Chelsea's, the Cities, the Arsenal's, lone guys out, uh, you're, you're in and you're out. To see out and just kind of write out their contract in Spurs, uh, you you would just at, at that point kind of write those players off and they're going to find their level. Now we're seeing more and more of those types of players being integrated into those teams, hmm. which gives you some help, hope for a guy like a Patrick Bamford uh, who's out on loan now from Chelsea and has been loaned out a, a number of times. Uh, players like that, because uh, Lingard's a guy that now, uh, having been around Old Trafford in and out, but around the club for many years, seems to be able to integrate into the team much more seamlessly and effectively than, than Memphis. Uh, uh, this having been said, they have still made two pretty solid signings now in Schweinsteiger and, uh, and Schneiderlin. We're seeing... Yeah. The quality of those and, two and Martial, guys. Martial too, and Martial, right? So even though Memphis was the was the high profile one, 
and it was the one everyone was talking about from an excitement level, it seems the rest of their signings are really panning out. No, that's, that's a really good point to bring them up. You know, you mentioned Ryan Mason getting called up. Memphis Depay has, was not called up by the Netherlands time, and it's kind of interesting to think, given that England seems to be calling up almost any young player that can get regular time for a top team. <laughs> yeah. Will Lingard get... The whole Spurs team, Right. Basically. Will Lingard get an international call-up before Depay gets his next one? Hmm, interesting. Um, let's talk about West Brom for a second. I think we feel the same way about this team uh, that we did a few weeks ago they're not in the relegation battle at this point i think they're five points clear of it at this point they're something like 13th place with 14 points this is a bad team though this team looks bad they set up at old trafford with no real plan for success they they dropped um Berahino. they played one up top this team is just feeling every bad biased Tony Pulis stereotype only at this point the bias against Tony Pulis's style of play is actually kind of becoming true yeah, and we see other teams that are negative and play defensively, but don't look as bad as this uh, this West Brom team. And this West Brom team has the kind of personnel personnel he had inherited from Alan Irvine, who's a, who's a, at least as an assistant, I thought very highly of. Actually, I don't think he did a terrible job as as the head man there. And from Steve Clark and Pepe Mel and all these guys that have come through uh, before them, Roberto Di Matteo, that uh, played a more progressive brand of football. He inherited that personnel. And has now kind of neutered them. Now, I didn't expect that because what Pulis did at Palace was very different than the Pulis stereotype. Mm. He inherited a lot of good wide players. Uh, they didn't necessarily have that knock uh, knockdown type forward, although he liked Shamak and he went out and signed uh, Cameron Jerome, who obviously <laughs> has followed him around a little bit. Um, but he w- they played a little bit more with the ball on the ground. So I thought that same thing was going to happen at West Brom. Uh, they were able to eke out the results last season to get to stay up. But this season, I have to tell you, uh, as much as I've defended Pulis in the past on this show and, and uh, uh, discussions and debates with some of our former co-hosts about Pulis, I think we are in a position where we might see him finally really get sucked into a relegation battle here. Because uh, I, I think you look at the bottom of the league, Villa is still very, very flawed. Bournemouth has all these uh, injuries, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at... Uh, uh, Sunderland, they might come good under Big Sam, and I'm mm-hmm. almost positive we haven't talked about them yet, but I am almost positive Newcastle's going to pull out of this, uh, with just the personnel on the team and the way they're playing. So, um... I think West Brom could get very easily sucked into this. Let's talk about two teams that people expected to be in the relegation battle, but one of them uh, is in third place. Leicester, a 2-1 to victory. They're two points off the top of the table. Uh, there isn't really much to talk about in this game, Carter. Maybe you'll disagree because it was such a freaky game in terms of Watford's goalkeeper. Gomez with just an absolute howl around Conte's goal, then conceding a penalty early in the second half that was converted by Jamie Vardy, now one match short of the all-time league record for consecutive matches with goals and in that way I don't know that we can discern much about Leicester from this match but it almost seems like just this momentum killer for a Watford team that had two wins in a row coming into this and then the way that they lost this game I think it's going to be very difficult for that team and and Kike Sanchez Flores to look at this match without an element of regret that really one person's bad day really cost them yeah and Gomez had had a really good season to this point that was uh and and we see this with keepers right uh keepers uh, aren't, aren't consistently good or consistently bad in this league other than De Gea is consistently good. And maybe you could make the argument that uh, maybe it's because I view them under more of a microscope. But the two American keepers, Howard and uh, mm. and uh, Guzan, are consistently bad. But um, mm. there, there, are, there are days like this for keepers. And Gomez had a really, really bad day. He has been 
excellent thus far this season for Watford, helping them with their solidity at the back, which we've talked about over and over again on the show, and, and their organization, and, and not concede many goals and, and basically stay in every match, even the matches against the likes of Arsenal and, and Man City where the dam finally broke. They were in for 60 or 70 minutes in those games. So uh, this was a, a disappointment because this is a game that they'll look on with some regret at the end of the season, especially when, when Leicester comes back to the pack, as I think we kind of assume will happen, that this is where they could have gotten a point or three points without those errors. Yeah, I, I still assume that will happen, Leicester. They've conceded 20 times. Their goal difference is only five, which is much lower than the other teams at the top of the league. And, and while those things definitely don't condemn any team to any fate, they're, they're kind of indicators as to how teams have played so far. And I think their, their point totals are actually outstretching their play. But the game by Gomez just reminded me of Czech's, Peter Cech's first game with Arsenal against West Ham, um, where it was just like, oh my gosh, this is this is the bad Peter Cech. Remember everybody, Peter Cech isn't as, as great as everybody said, and, and Peter Cech has gone on to be one of the best keepers in the league this year. I, I think this is an aberrational game, and it, unfortunately yeah. it, it really cost Watford. Uh, Kartik, let's take our first trip to Europe right now, and let's start in France. If for no other reason to get this league out of the way, at the huh. time of recording, Paris Saint-Germain is 11 points clear at the top of the table, having routed to lose 5-0 at the Parc de Princesse on Saturday. A Lyon's Derby with Saint-Étienne at the Stade Gerland that is going on as record could close that gap to 10 by Sunday's final whistle, but PSG have 31 goals through 13 rounds. They've only conceded six times, and in the broader picture, they're the only interesting team from League One in Europe this year. I say all this not to pile on League One per se, but we may want to start taking this obligatory League One update that we have every week and start spreading it throughout Europe because from a neutral's perspective, there really isn't much interesting about League One where PSG is so far away from the pack and no other teams are stepping up into that gap. Um, speaking of other teams here, other leagues here in North America, Major League Soccer has the second legs of what are essentially their quarterfinals. They kick off a little bit after we're done recording the show on Sunday. Uh, let's go to Spain now, where the big result was in Vigo, where third place Celta was on the wrong end of a thrashing by Valencia. Two goals each from Paco Acacer and Dani Parejo led Los Che to a 5-1 route of Spain's third place re- team. Uh, it's a result that's made all the more interesting because the team's coach, Nuno Espirito Santo, continues to be booed by his own fans, who have made the absence of Alvaro Negredo from the team's matchday squads into a symbol of their discontent. Unfortunately for that discontent, Valencia has rebounded from a, from a very downtrodden start to pull within two points of fourth. And after their midweek win in Champions League, they're also second place in their group, looking like a good bet to make the knockout round. Elsewhere in Spain, Barcelona got a 3-0 win over fifth place Villarreal and moved alone at the top of the table pending Real Madrid's late Sunday visit to Sevilla, a visit that is never a guarantee of three points. Should they win at the Sanchez-Pizuan, they will be even at the top. Atletico Madrid got a 1-0 victory over visiting Sporting Gijón to take third place from Celta with a Clasico approaching. Atleti are only four points back at the top. We're going to go ahead and take a break now, right now, get a little music in here, and also get Lawrence McKenna in here. When we come back, we will have our Players of the Week. We'll also talk about Liverpool's disappointing result at Anfield against Crystal Palace, and then later in the show, we'll touch about Jose Mourinho, Chelsea, and another disappointing result for the blues stay with us this is the world soccer talk podcast welcome back everybody to the world soccer talk podcast we have found lawrence mckenna i'm not exactly sure where we found him the internet is very confusing but lawrence welcome to the show 
Hmm. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You tried to avoid us. Only lasted for 30 minutes. You have to spend the next 30 minutes with us. Uh, let's start with Players of the Week, gentlemen. Kartik, you were gone last week, unfortunately, so you get to go first. Who stood out to you this week? Who stood out to me this week was uh, the guy we already talked about, uh, Jesse Lingard. Really kind of changing the, 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 the energy and enthusiasm around Manchester United's attack and the attitude in Manchester United supporters. Uh, I think he's been a breath of fresh air since they've been so frustrated with the level of performances and the style of play, even though the results have continued to come for United throughout this season. Yeah, and Red Devils fans do love one of their own. For me, I feel weird about this, guys, because it seems like every two or three weeks I bend over backwards to find a defender to honor here. Uh, and I'm kind of realizing that maybe I'm, I'm becoming a sucker to this pattern that I've subconsciously established for myself. But nonetheless, I'm going with John Stones this weekend. I thought he had another very good performance after a couple of not-so-great performances, but maybe that's him losing Phil Jagielka next to him, having to play a first game with uh, out Phil Jagielka. But I thought he was very good this weekend against West Ham. Uh, part of that maybe is that Dimitri Paya got hurt in this game, but I, I still between John Stones and Chris Smalling, there's just an envious central defense pairing that uh, Roy Hodgson has developing there. So I'm going with him. Lawrence? Chris Smalling. I I didn't struggle for a defender. (laughs) I'm just going to go straight in and say um, the qualities that he's showing in United's back line, the amount of minutes, I think it's over 500 minutes now, they kept a a constant clean sheet in the Premier League. I'm, I'm just impressed by... What I love is the public public perception of Smalling versus the way that he's evolving. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, for a very long time, people didn't underestimate him, but they just thought, well, you know, is he really the strong? Uh, is he developing? I was talking with, who was I talking with? It would have been, uh, it would have been Martin Keown. Um, and he said, I know that that's not a name drop, genuinely. I was just chatting. And he it said, a there's a, there's a, it's not. Um, and he said, there is a time when, younger players become in his own words men mm-hmm. and he said he sort of saw that happening with smalling at this stage where yeah. they kind of they they basically begin to take responsibility for the team and begin and but not only that begin to realize that responsibility because you know there's young players at liverpool like michael owen who kind of had a lot of responsibility but didn't necessarily understand the gravitas of that and mm. I think Smalling is is the opposite. I don't think he realized the gravitas, but I think now he's utterly realized that at United. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because I think that's one way that you can kind of describe, although in nebulous ways, the difference in what we see from Chris Smalling and John Stones, two very good defenders at this point of their careers. But Chris Smalling seems to have that leadership quality, that commanding presence, that person that is going to take ultimate responsibility, whereas John Stones, we just see him performing very well, mostly in um, in and out. Both of you guys, Kartik, you first. Is there any reason for Rory Hodgson not to be starting these two players next summer? No. Although Gary Cahill, I think... That's the one player that jumped to mind for me, too. Right. Gary Cahill obviously hasn't played well this season, but he's part of a larger picture of a team not, not playing well and not getting results. So uh, maybe you don't, you don't nudge him out of the way, but he's the only guy I could make a case for outside of those two. What do you think, Lawrence? No, I agree. But what I wonder is, I mean, we were talking about this today. You know, if you end up taking a, a Stones to the tournament, you probably end up using him. Um, but, you know, if you end up, ta- it, it's very different with the development of young defenders versus the development of young midfielders. Um, we were talking about Deli Ali today. If he goes to the Euros with England this year, he doesn't get a game. Because, well, why does, you know, why when, does Stones have to necessarily get a game? I don't understand that. Well, because I think 
it's very different at centre back to to somewhere else on the pitch because it's it, it's about a different kind of building momentum and I think there's a uh, a more it's just a different role I think obviously it is and um, centre back especially for England I think these kind of experience and, and these kind of tournaments are the kind of place where I th- I imagine however Stones would play and I imagine however Smalling would play I think the two will get different treatment in the press but they will be given the time to develop if they're played at this tournament. Mm. So what I would say is almost almost risk losing um, and play these guys. Yeah, if, if it is a risk at all, I think that's also the debate too. Are these your two best players? And even if they're not, like you're hinting, if Stones is your third or fourth best center back, is there a long-term gain putting him next to Smalling in central defense come next summer? Let's get back to the Premier League gentlemen, Lawrence. Very interesting game on Sunday at Anfield because in one respect, this was maybe Liverpool's best performance under Jurgen Klopp. The numbers certainly show a very lopsided game, as did the eye test. Klopp-sided. (laughs) <laughs> hey, Am I right, guys? oh, let's sorry, sorry about to drop you from this call for that. Um, <laughs> but it's also the first loss of the Klopp era to essentially defensive mistakes in different ways. Uh, yeah. Me and Crystal Palace get a two-one win at Anfield. So, what did you take away from this game? Uh, I think uh, certainly for Klopp, it's uh, a reminder. I think earlier in the week he he said some very kind word about, words about Brendan Rodgers. I think a lot of people agreed with, which was you know Brendan did a a good job here of, of bringing people up to a certain footballing intelligence and standard. You know, maybe that's giving just Brendan um, credit for something that wasn't just him, but it is, you know, it seems almost like a pity compliment in a way, but then I don't think um, Klopp is that kind of man. Um, I don't know. He called Mourinho a nice guy. So maybe he is. I mean, yeah, but everyone calls the class bully a nice guy. Um, (laughs) I think, uh, and then, and then it almost came back to haunt him. What, uh, what what Rogers had left, which was players who, if, if they have that momentary lapse, then the entire game goes on that. Mm. I also think Benteke spurned a lot of chances today, was in great positions, and on days when you do well, so for instance against Liverpool against Chelsea, Benteke came on and actually closed down quite a lot of the space for Liverpool. Um, but it was good because they were dominant at that time, so they could uh, they could they were basically feeling you know they could play around that. But today, when Benteke's movement wasn't the same or wasn't the level it needed to be, Liverpool suffered because of that and didn't quite give them the surface service to be able to uh, do anything with it. I think there was a bit of disjunction when it came to actually attacking at goal. We still saw Coutinho, we still saw Firmino later on in the game with some great movement and movement that was different to mm-hmm. what was going on with uh, Rogers. And so, uh, overall, I'd say the assessment is good. I, I actually think. Palace played a good match because they uh, sat back and really soaked up a lot of the Liverpool pressure and then chose their moments. And you could tell towards the end of the game, they thought Liverpool are tiring. This is the time to get set pieces and essentially exploit Liverpool's own game plan against them. And I think they did that very well. Credit to Palace for doing that. And at the same time, it's one of those bogey team things that Liverpool are starting to uh, get some sort sort of a complex. Let's talk talk about Palace for a little bit, Kartik, because I I don't want to just ignore the winner in in this game. Uh, But as the numbers allude to, as we've we've alluded to in the last couple minutes, this was a particular type of game, a very Alan Pardew on the road against a talented team game. They only had nine shots on goal. They only kept 37% of the ball. There were spells where they looked very good. But at the same time, Kartik, when when they got that second goal, this did feel very smash and grabby. Yeah, and 
again, I mean, Pardue teams are kind of the toughest teams to analyze uh, from year to year. I mean, we've gone through these with, with Newcastle where they played well and they didn't win, and then they, 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 would, they would start the season with two points after five, six matches and then go on a big run. And this was a game that seemed very smash and grabby. And, and Pardue alluded to it in his postgame comments uh, with, uh, with the BBC which I think will be on Match of the Day your way later tonight, Lawrence. I have the advantage of getting BBC World and seeing some of these uh, these things. Uh, uh, of, I mean, of course, Karthik, because you live in Britain where the sport's played, whereas I just live in a nebulous... <laughs> <country>. <laughs> but part of his comments to the BBC after the game were simply put that he thought they had played well for the majority of the game, were the better team, and then... The period where they got the winning goal, they were on the back foot. So, and and I mm. I, I agree with that analysis. I concur with that. Mm. Uh, Kartik, I want to stay with you because with the international break coming up, it's such a good opportunity to ask these broad questions. And the one we should ask with Klopp is just assessing now that he's been in the job for three or four weeks, the progress that has been made or the hints that we see toward the future. How would you rate this first spell of the Jurgen Klopp era at Liverpool? Well, I think the the win at Rubin the other day was very uh, was very good to see. No English team had gone there before and even gotten a draw, so to get three points and, and three points that were needed if progress in the Europa League is something you're enthusiastic about as a Liverpool supporter, then um, it was a very very important result and and uh, a well played match. Uh, obviously, there've been these setbacks. Uh, I think we all thought that the result against Spurs, nil uh, nil at White Hart Lane, was was a perfectly acceptable result considering how good Spurs have been this season. But I don't think we get uh, that sense about some of the Premier League results since, uh, particularly this game. Uh, of course, the Chelsea game uh, aside, but we can't judge results against Chelsea right now, right? They're that bad. Hmm. So um, I think there's work to be done. But going to Rubin and getting that result, I think, is a type of result that. Liverpool went to gotten under Rodgers. So uh, there are slight signs of progress. Hmm. And Lawrence, it's so hard to make broad judgments about a squad or even the fit of the squad of the coach with yeah. this with this little window. But we can start to see hints. We can start to see things that maybe we should watch over the next three or four months. And the one thing that I just keep coming back to is that Liverpool have a bunch of good players, but they don't have any great players in their team right now. And in that respect... I think the next three or four months really going to tell us where Liverpool needs to address needs in the summer. And until then, it kind of runs like we see now where, you know, one loss in, what is it, six or seven matches? That's, well, actually, that's Rich, perfectly Richard, fine. That, I mean, the funny thing is, uh, you know, if, if you go back 12 games, their last loss was against Manchester United. Hmm. Um, and then since then, you know, obviously uh, Rodgers was sacked on a series of draws. So actually it's 12 games in a row. Which is actually now what um, Spurs have done, and people are extolling the virtues of that 12, those twelve games in a row. Um, so, but Spurs have done it in the league, though. That's the difference. Yes, in the league, but then at the same time, you'd say that in the transition of a manager, still just twelve back-to-back results is still uh, yeah. twelve back-to-back results under this transition okay, that's could fair. still be seen as a positive. Yeah. Um, so, I think that uh, you know, it's not. It, I'm not taking away from Spurs. What I'm saying is, you know, let's apply. A similar narrative to Liverpool, and maybe it changes part of that. I also think it's, it goes the same with players and manager. You know, uh, give me sports and court offside. Positively saw uh, dollar signs rolling back into the back of their head when they saw they could literally put, "Will this Liverpool player play well under Klopp?" for every bloody headline. Um, so, it, you know, they ended up with 
they ended up with this side, which is now breaking the kind of assumptions that we had about Benteke and about Coutinho. And we're learning things about players that under Rodgers looked less positive. Mm. And you'd say the same. It's a very similar transition for when Pochettino took over at Spurs. Essentially, it was that there was already something there, but it just wasn't being completely uh, taken to the maximum by the previous manager. And you argue Pochettino and Klopp aren't doing that to the maximum right now, but it's still it, there's still some progress there. Well, yeah, certainly. I think uh, under Spurs, you can argue that uh, I was actually having this discussion with somebody this week. How if Spurs had hired Van Hall last year, he probably would have put together a minimal structure that maybe would have gotten them top four over Manchester United or Arsenal. But they wouldn't have shown the same progress that they have at this point where we see the result like today. And the Kartik and I spent a couple minutes debating where in the title discussion Spurs belong, not necessarily if they belong. Because after today's result and the fact that the only match they've lost this year was on an own goal at Old Trafford, they deserve to be in that discussion. Uh, so maybe it'll take a little bit of time for Klopp. And I think everybody concedes that. Uh, I guess my main question is, what do they need to add to this team? Because I'm not sure that the players that we see right now, while they're still very good and they're very capable of making a push, are at the quality that I think um, matches the the aspirations of Jurgen, Jurgen Klopp's promise. Uh, gentlemen, let's switch a little bit here. Let's go to Kartik. What I thought was one of the more interesting matchups as far as just styles and where teams are on the table. West Ham hosting Everton. Uh, West Ham breaking through first through Manuel Lanzini, a very, very skillful goal. And then Everton yep. with a spectacular ball from Gerard Delefeu putting Romelu Lukaku through 1-1 draw on this one. Uh, this is a weird match because I don't have any bottom line takeaways from this match other than we saw very two evenly matched good teams play each other. Yeah, and I think that that is the takeaway the, the, on Lanzini. I've talked to some folks who follow Argentine football pretty closely, and, and they're surprised uh, how how good he's been in front of goal in the Premier League. Uh, he was uh, he 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 was a very good attack-minded player at, at River Plate, but he wasn't uh, this sort of uh, kind of assassin. Another great goal from him. I think that's three or four now on the season. Uh, I've I've lost track, but they've all been good goals. They've all been notable goals. Yeah, the one um, against Chelsea sticks out to me. Yeah, right. Uh, we we all remember goals against Chelsea this season. Mm. There've been a lot of them. Uh, but I, I think this was a, this was just a good game. Two two good teams, and obviously uh, injury concern now with Payet injured for for West Ham. Uh, but West Ham has more depth than than Leicester, the other team that's kind of caught us by surprise this season. So uh, they might be able to absorb an injury or two. Although Payet is one guy you don't want to. Lose. Yeah, the three players they brought off the bench today, Jelovic, Valencia, and then Zarate, just shows you the the options that uh, Bilic has coming off his bench. I, I want to move on to another match, Lawrence. I want to move on to um, Stadium of Light. Sunderland loses 1-0 at home, uh, a game that they were competing in until a mistake by Jan and Vila gave Southampton the opening that they needed. Uh, let's talk about Southampton first because they've also yep. put a string of results together. They're kind of solidly seventh in the league, a team that you can see moving up or down from that point. But I just get the feeling, particularly for a team that has now only conceded six goals in their last eight matches, that they're kind of back to the surprise team. Well, last year it was surprise, but they're kind of back to the team they were last year. Yes, if anything, I think they've improved on the team that they were last year because uh, of the, the attacking uh, combinations that they're doing now. I think their yeah. movement and I think some of their combinations between the players are much better. It, I think actually Mane they're and managing. Pele both seem like they're a little better than last year. 
Exactly. Well, exactly. And I also think uh, the, the introduction of what Tadic does with the side now, and I also think they've made Ward Prowse a lot more prominent within the team. Mm-hmm. I just think that front front four basically as a combination is a lot more intricate, if, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think it, it's able to span a lot wider area. Southampton, I think, really use the space on the pitch well. And when, what I say by that is that, I mean, they spread it very well when they need to, but they also manage to compress the other side. So when they compress the other team, then it means that their play, it basically means their play can go around the other side, making get to the goal a lot easier. And you find Pella's movement is fantastic at doing that. I know that all sounds a little bit ambiguous. Maybe my analysis is... No, it, sound, no, it sounds level. good. It sounds like a good way to but, describe uh, what they can do going forward. Yeah, but I don't know if I'm being detailed enough in that is what I'm saying. Um, it's so a podcast. Go, go we don't have graphics. Your own research. <laughs> yeah, go into your own research. I can't do it all for you. Or just, um, just watch the games. Yeah, but but what I'm saying by that is um, <laughs> that, you know, they, they basically also what they rely on from that is, I think, uh, really good uh, basis to play from. And I think the fact that the back four is so solid and Van Dyke's uh, distribution ar- around the side and especially down the left side to Bertrand is now yeah. going so well and therefore they're pushing on um, you know, the likes of Tadic even further. I think it basically just benefits the whole team and it shows how as a unit some sides are really good. Some teams are stacked in certain areas and I think um, Sunderland certainly came up against a team like that. Mm-hmm. Sunderland, uh, Sunderland seem like a side that are very stacked up front and don't quite know how to make that work. Um, and when I say stacked up front, I mean they've got an incredible amount of talent but they don't quite know how to use right. it right um and then basically at the back they basically have a load of people who were trying their best to do an impression of a defender right uh southampton is very interesting for some of the players that you mentioned the van dyke acquisition really did fill that hole that ando left getting bertrand back healthy it's like they've gotten two new defenders back there they still don't have fraser forrester fully healthy yet uh, they didn't quite replace morgan schneiderlin they thought they were with uh, jordy Classy. hasn't quite worked but they've still They've still gotten back to this place after a rocky start of the season. But, Kartik, I want to talk to you about Sunderland. 1-0 loss at home, tough loss because of the nature of Vila's decision on that penalty. I mean, just a, a poor place to go into a sliding challenge, a pretty clear call. But we've seen Sam Allardyce switch back and forth and back between formations in his first league game, three league games. Is that something we should be concerned about? For me, also, dropping Jermaine Defoe when he seems to be their best goal-scoring option is something that I don't, I don't want to say is negative, but it's something that I'm looking at with curiosity. Yeah, he doesn't really know his best team yet, and they have a lot of players he inherited from... We've, we've been through this before on the show, right? Four different managers in four seasons, all of whom were given summer transfer windows. And by four managers in four seasons, I don't mean uh, there was a guy who was sa- uh, hired in November and sacked in March. I mean, basically, four different summers with four different managers, four different attempts to buy players, and, and, and all different styles of players, different man- styles of managers. So they just have a mishmash of players, and he's trying to figure out what to do with this team, and, and nobody has been consistent on this team with the exception of Jan Villa. He's the one player who I think has been pretty good for them this season and obviously shocking mistake, uh, just bad judgment call by him, uh, clumsiness in, in the area. But other than him, th- th- you just have a mishmash of players, and it's going to take some time for Sam to figure out what his best team is, what formation he should be in, uh, what spots you use certain guys in. So I, I think this is going to continue for a while. That having been said... They didn't look that bad in this game. 
Hmm. No, and I guess in that respect, much like with Newcastle, who we'll talk about in a minute, there's reason to think better things are to come. Uh, but before that minute is here, let's take a trip back to Europe, our second trip to Europe, where both Germany and Italy had major local derbies highlighting their weekend schedules. But let's start in the Bundesliga, where Borussia Dortmund, winners of three in a row after their mid-October slump, welcomed their biggest rival, Schalke, to the Westfalenstadion on Sunday. Schalke has been slumping, slumping lately after a strong start to the season. But in one of the biggest matches of the year, the Blues got two goals from their striker, Klaus-Jan Huntelaar. Unfortunately, they never led as an early goal from Shinji Kagawa and scores from Matthias Ginter and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Bookending halftime gave BVB a 3-2 win. Aubameyang is now joint top of Germany's scoring charts, having scored 14 times in 12 league matches. Elsewhere in Germany, Bayern destroyed Stuttgart, outshooting them 33-4 in a 4-0 win at the Allianz Arena. I can't even say that without laughing at that number, 33-4. Uh, while Borussia Mönchengladbach, perfect in league since André Schubert replaced Lucien Favre as head coach, was held to a scoreless draw by visiting Ingolstadt. Bayern is still five points clear at the top of the league. Now in Italy, Roma and Lazio met at the Stadio Olimpico with the Giallo Rossi needing a win to stay within one point at the top. Uh, Inter was in that top spot going into that match, having pulled off one of Roberto Mancini's patented 1-0 victories early on Sunday. A Lazio came into the derby slumping, having lost two in a row, but all that goes out of the window in games like this, right? Uh, not exactly. An early penalty conversion from Aiden Dzeko and a second-half goal from Gervinho gave Roma a 2-0 win. Uh, remarkable as much for the win as the clean sheet that a poor defense for Roma was able to keep. They stayed within one point at the top. Fiorentina with a late kickoff at Sampdoria could pull even with Inter with a win, uh, while Napoli winners against Udinese stayed within two points at first. And as for the defending champions, Juventus, with a 3-1 win over Empoli, they're now in seventh place, pending the result at Sampdoria. Gentlemen, let's get to our Premier League Talk 4s, um, something that I'm sure gets us lots of positive, encouraging tweets every week, it seems like. Uh, Kartik, I threw you under the bus for Player of the Week, so I'm going to go for first here. Um, on form, I'm not sure that there's an argument against Spurs right now, uh, given their long, unbeaten run, as well as the nature of the result on Sunday. I have them number one. Uh, number two, kind of going back and forth between Arsenal and Leicester, given Arsenal's last couple of weeks. I'm going to go with Arsenal and make the excuse that we're only going to go by league form here, even though that's not a rule. I'm going to use it as an excuse. I have Leicester three, and I'm guessing putting Southampton four, but given the fact that they needed a penalty to get a win at a bad Sunderland team, I guess I could put City here too, because City did actually play well. Um, but regardless, th that's my top four. As for my end of the season top four, Manchester City number one. I still have a good healthy gap from them to Arsenal, but after Arsenal, I have a gap to United and Spurs. I'm going to keep United at three right now, but something's telling me that it's almost time to slide Spurs into that third place spot. Lawrence, your turn. Okay. Uh, four. Hmm. I, why do we go one down? Why don't we go four up? Because <laughs> you've never said that before. It is actually better to go four to one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, because then it's, it's more surprising. Although, actually, that's, is that because we feel like one is actually nailed on and four is now more surprising than the champion? Yeah, I wonder. I think just uh, it's easier to talk about one after going through the games that we do. And I guess also the way we do the show, we tend to talk about the top of the league first. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. It's a, that's a really good idea, Lawrence. Uh, cool. In at four, we find Spurs, uh, mainly because they went away, uh, managed to look like the better team in this derby, uh, although at times they look very vulnerable. Just above them, I'm going to find myself with a Manchester City side who came up again. Uh, this was just a bad time to play Villa. 
you were almost like, oh, please sack him next week instead. Um, so, you know, credit to Garden that one. Uh, and then we're going above to Arsenal and then we go to Manchester United at the very top. I think that'll switch around come the end of the season. But a lot of people are saying, and I'll probably agree at this point, that that's the finish end of the season top four. Wait, did you swap City and United there? Because you had United at number one? Yeah. What, what's going on here? My mind's well, blown. I- uh, well, it's because my appreciation of the way that Van Gaal treats the press and the way that uh, he enc- encourages them to think outside the box that they just seem to put everything in. And you found something like this outside of your box. Yes, I, wow. and I love the box. Um, I, I'm going to strongly encourage you to get the hell back in your box because... That... <laughs> get back in your box, idiot. Kartik, Kartik, take this away from Lawrence as quickly as possible. Who, your top four in form... Okay, I'm going to go top four on form, one to four, and then we're going to go four to one. We're going to have a compromise here on uh, the end of the season. <laughs> so one to four on form is Spurs one, where they've been for weeks in my thing. Of course, I was uh, in Jacksonville last week for uh, the, the NASL game and wasn't on the show. But Spurs would have been number one last week, too, and they were the week before and the week before. So they, they stay number one. They've been number one for a run now. Uh, two Leicester, three Arsenal, four Southampton now. Uh, it's just kind of eking out results and, and doing it below the radar. End of the season, we're going to go four. Still Spurs. I haven't moved them up yet. Three, Arsenal. Tweet your hate mail at KKFLA737 because <laughs> I know it's coming. Two United, one City. And like Lawrence said, and as I said earlier in the show, I think United's getting results and they've got De Gea back there. So uh, they are in this title race in spite of not looking very good. They are very much in a title race with in, in a league with a lot of deeply flawed teams. I just think Louis van Hall's teams tend to have two types of seasons. One where they find a run of form and they transcend how they looked before. And that was last year's season. And the other type of season that they usually have is the season where he gets fired and they completely collapse. I just don't see that happening because I think the collapse usually comes in year two or three of a squad having to deal with Louis van Hall. And there's been so much turnover amongst the major players in the squad. I, just, I think the collapse is coming next year. I'm already planning on picking Manchester United sixth in next year's league. Um, speaking of good, good teams that. that have disappointed, let's talk about Chelsea, gentlemen. Uh, Kartik, I want to start with you because we're actually at the point where we need to mitigate our disappointment a little bit because Chelsea is actually playing better. Uh, they had 19 shots in this match against Stoke. They held Stoke to eight. They controlled the play most of the time except for one brief spell in the second half where, of course, they gave up a goal, and, of course, they end up losing one to nothing. And what we're left with, Kartik, is just a very mixed picture about Chelsea, even if the results have stayed the same. There's just a real lack of confidence now, isn't there, with them, to the point where I, I'm not sure that they, uh, they're in a position where even when they play well, they're going to get the results. And this is uh, especially away from home. So this is this was a bit of an eye opener because these are the sorts of games where Chelsea would would roll in the past. They get a goal, and that would be that. And this game was uh, was confounding. I mean, I thought Hazard played pretty well. I thought Pedro getting a rare start played very well. Hmm. And and I felt like uh, Matic was okay in midfield. He wasn't terrible yeah. like he's been most of the season. Uh, their back four was fine, and uh, they didn't. Uh, Costa was was pretty wasteful, but they. Uh, they didn't get the result. They didn't even get a draw out of this one. Hmm. Lawrence, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on Chelsea, but I also want to hear your thoughts on something that was very interesting because it's rare that we actually have uh, the Referees Association in the middle of a game 
saying uh, at the prompting of the press that they got a call wrong, and that was when Loic Remy, late in the match, was put in on a goal. And the replays were inconclusive, but you could say that maybe Jack Butlin, looking to clean up that ball, got a piece of Remy, missed the ball, Remy ends up going down and doesn't get up in time to put the ball into an empty net. So I thought that was very interesting that within minutes, at least the U.S. broadcast was... Uh, issuing that clarification that it should have been both a penalty and a red card, and I guess <laughs> I guess I'm just excited how that's going to play into Chelsea, Chelsea and Chelsea's fans' paranoia. Uh, no, well, yeah, great paranoia. Yeah, um, I don't really play into the whole paranoia thing. I've seen a lot of um, I've seen a lot of paranoid Chelsea fans over the past week. Uh, Chelsea. Let's just put it this way. Not many of them are making themselves very likable right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there, then, there's, then there's obviously it is a penalty, but you also have to respect what Remy did, uh, stayed on his feet. I, I, don't, people, I don't agree with that. I don't think you have to respect it because he essentially cost his team points. Um, or probably cost his team at least a point. Well, some people are saying it's selfish. Um, and some people are saying it's selfish because he wanted to stay on his feet because he's not the penalty taker. I think it's I think it's just um, an understandable mistaken judgment. I mean, it's it's a bang bang situation. He probably isn't the type of player that just goes down. But if he had gone down under contact, Chelsea probably gets a draw out of that match. So how can you how can we say it's such an admirable thing to do? Uh, well, this is my problem. Is it, it kind of sets so many things at almost a juxtaposition or a, um, a different a bipolar scale, if you like. So it's either wrong or it's right. Maybe it can um, be neither. Maybe it can just exactly. be something that happened. But the problem is that people want answers which are either Remy was wrong to do this or he was right to do this. Uh, because, you know, somehow he morally comes out on top or doesn't. <laughs> he was in a um, no-lose situation, let's say that. You also say, though, I mean, that that means I think there's going to be a lot of people calling for other penalties because of being impeded by a goalkeeper. And you sort of think, well, how much does that limit the goalkeeper and his movement? Because... I just, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, if the ball goes beyond him, then he's got to take that risk. But at some point, do we protect the goalkeepers? What do we do with them? You know, what what kind of, what was the goalkeeper supposed to do that? Was he supposed to do that? Or was he supposed to stand his ground? Uh, I think he was, he's probably, like a lot of goalkeeping decisions, if he, if he really thought he could get the ball, he has to go out for it. He made a, he made an error in judgment, didn't get the ball, and therefore it probably was a foul. I mean, you just want them to make correct decisions like other players. And if they don't, you just... You say sometimes the right decision doesn't get made. That's part of sport. Yeah, I, and I guess that's it. Is that's part of sport. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe if you'd had retrospective calls or you had a referee watching on TV <laughs> at the same time, then you would have um, something that you could go on with. But, yeah. you, but we don't currently have that in the game. Yeah. Um, I, I, do, I think you're right about the clarification, how weird that is, um, especially considering they were talking about undermining the referee, etc. I just wonder if actually they they look at the way that they feel they're undermining the referees and does it actually undermine the referee to give some clarification mm. i'm not sure that it does kartik let's talk about stoke for a little bit here I, there's some more to talk oh, about boy. chelsea but we're running short on time let's talk about stoke because here in the u.s at least nbc re- really big this week for for some reason this week about the the new style stoke has been playing even though they haven't been playing a new style this was an interesting topic like two months ago. At this point, the interesting part of this is the fact that they aren't actually playing a new style. They are kind of reverting back to their security blanket, it seems like, with that club. And as a result, they just don't look very good, even though they did get three points against Chelsea today. Yeah. 
I, I, I'm really kind of disappointed by Stoke. I, those of you who might uh, follow some of my writing on, on other, uh, for other publications realize I picked Stoke to qualify for Europe before the season, had them, had them seventh in the league. You're a good yeah. man for saying that out loud. Stoke. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that, that is not something I want to claim ownership of now, but it's there in writing. I might as well not hide from it because I felt like they were getting all these kind of stylish players that they were bringing in and, Sparky was transitioning their style and they still had enough of the John Walters types uh, and, and Shawcross of those types of players that played for Tony Pulis that they could grind out results when they need to. Well, it just hasn't happened except when they played Chelsea twice in the last 10 days. Other than that, they're not grinding out results. They're a confoundingly confusing team. Uh, and I guess the conclusion that I've come to, and you might agree with this, Richard, is that they bought a lot of luxury players when they don't have the, the luxury of, of, of uh, needing luxury players, if for lack of a better way of describing that. They bought a lot of guys that are repetitive and are stylish players who don't necessarily fit the other guys they have on the team. And now you just have no style, no consistency, no flow to most Stoke matches. And it's just uh, all these kind of random results. I mean, they win at Swansea, then they then they lose at home. to, to I can't remember who they lost at home to after Watford. But they, they, all these kind of very random results, beating... Uh, getting two results against Chelsea in ten days, but also losing to uh, to other really kind of low sides. It, it's it's there's nothing about this Stoke team after three months of the season. We're now three months into the season that uh, indicates that they're going to reach the heights that we thought they would. And they are obviously Chelsea. It's very easy to say Chelsea's the most disappointing team in 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 the league. Stoke to me is the other real disappointment in this in this league. In spite of uh, winning this game, I, I just. Uh, don't see much going right for them. And while I don't think they're going to be in a relegation fight, they are not far off being in a relegation fight. Yeah, perhaps the best you can say for them is that despite not looking good on the field, the results have bought them 12 games worth of time to figure it out and have bought them some more time going forward to figure it out. Like you said, they're probably not going to be in a relegation battle, which gives them some time to actually craft some of that style, craft, craft in a viable approach going forward. Uh, Lawrence, Two other teams that I think probably fall into that too, maybe not relegation fodder at this point, but uh, have bought themselves time to figure out a winning formula. Uh, met at Norwich this weekend. Norwich one to nothing victory over Swansea when some um, some momentarily terrible defending from Swansea allowed Norwich to take this one. Uh, we've been high on Norwich at times during this pod. They finally broke back into the win column. We've been high on Swansea at times during this pod, even <laughs> though they seem to be in a bit of a free fall right now. What do you make of these two clubs right now? Uh, certainly when it comes down to management, then you'd say there are two uh, styles that were maybe juxtaposed in this game um, and the way they've constructed both of their sides, whilst both admirable have gone down different routes. Um, and ultimately I think that that one at times doesn't serve both sides at times serves both sides and when you see the likes of Swansea who seem to have a much more umbrella sort of approach to their football uh, and a slightly more long-term approach play a side who in the short term need these sort of results you kind of see how it plays out to be honest Hmm. Um, and I think you know Norwich sort of saw a scalp um, and I, I think that Swansea see themselves sometimes as a bit of a scalp in the league because they're not easy points, but the way that they play will sometimes leave them open to this. Um, and I, genuinely, I think that they found themselves sort of outplayed in this game, Norwich, but realised that if they, if they concede possession to Swansea and somewhat frustrate them, they can go down the other end and they can probably have more shots than them. 
mm. um, they can probably they can probably have more chances and probably create a more aggressive style of play than Swansea because at the moment Swansea don't look as aggressive as they need to be. When I look at games like Swan- Swansea and Norwich, it just makes me really regret that we don't still do a midweek preview show because I think there was so much interesting to talk about in this match. I think, Lawrence, you hit on a couple of those things. Now, I'll contrast that with the last match that we're going to talk about this weekend, Kartik, Newcastle versus Bournemouth. I didn't think there was very much interesting about this match beforehand, but almost any result was going to be interesting because one of these two teams was going to make some kind of improvement. Even if it was a draw, these two teams both are in need of points. As is Newcastle with an early goal from Iosi Perez, one nothing victory over Bournemouth. Uh, Eddie Howe's side is definitely sliding. I don't know if they have the talent to change that. As opposed to Newcastle, uh, there's probably some reason at this point to think that Steve McLaren is starting to get things figured out. Yeah, Iosi Perez, the one uh, player, and of course he came from Tenerife, right? He came from a Segunda team to Newcastle. One guy that really performed well for them last season in what was a... Uh, <laughs> Very troubled season. Somehow they stayed in the league. We're still talking about Newcastle in this division somehow. Uh, they should have been relegated last year, but he was probably their best player last season, uh, uh, other than Colaccini, who, who is generally their, their leader and fighter and captain. Uh, and in this uh, game, he, he got that goal. Uh, I think I think Newcastle are turning the corner. I've said that for a couple of weeks. Uh, the results haven't been coming. This result came. I do think they're going to be fine. I don't think – I'm not even sure they're going to be in a relegation fight, let alone get relegated. As far as uh, the Cherries are concerned – the injuries to Gradle, Callum Wilson, Elpcheck, uh, there were a couple of Mings, a couple other guys injured too. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they um, it's just piled up now. So this, the, the question is, those guys were all signed. Now Wilson obviously was with them last season, but Mings and Gradle were signed to fit this Eddie Howe kind of slick, idealistic football, beautiful football that that Bournemouth has played as they've stormed up the divisions. Does Bournemouth now have to become like every other? team and we hate it as as fans as neutrals do they but do they need to become more pragmatic i mean are they do they just have no chance of staying in this division with those guys injured and playing in such a kind of slick style that 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 that, uh leaves them very open and very vulnerable that's the big question i think uh eddie howe may have to check some of his principles to keep this team competitive in the league and this is the evolution of a manager because i think we, we all sense that Eddie Howe is the best young English manager out there. We think if the FA ever gets their heads out of their asses, he'll manage England at some point. Uh, we're not sure that the FA will get their heads out of their rear ends, but uh, if they did at some point in the future, he will be England manager. But this is part of the evolution. He, he probably needs a little bit of Capello in him right now. And for Eddie Howe, the international break comes at a perfect time because he can make the assessment as to whether he can take those matches between the break and the winter window and keep Bournemouth viable uh, while preserving their style or like you say there needs to be adjustments speaking of adjustments we're going to be taking a break next week no show for the international break we will be back on november 22nd when the premier league is back to wrap up the 13th week of action on the schedule but until then i'm richard farley for my co-host lawrence mckenna kartik enjoy your football The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 